This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Ray Naylor is an American diplomat and the author of The Mountain in the Sea, a speculative novel about the possibilities of interspecies communication that draws deeply upon contemporary philosophy and neuroscience, as well as his extensive experience living and working in Central and Southeast Asia. Mountain tells the story of Dr. Han Nguyen, a marine biologist invited by a shadowy tech company to the Condao Archipelago in Vietnam to investigate a colony of octopuses that may have developed language and culture. There are parallel storylines about the promises and perils of machine learning and AI and the collapse of marine ecosystems, all interweaving with the main plot in ingenious ways. It's a novel blending high adventure and big ideas, and it has immediately gone to the top of my books of the year list, even though it's only February. I sat down with Ray last week to find out more. Ray, your debut novel, The Mountain in the Sea, is a literary thriller with big scientific and philosophical ideas at its heart, and an awful lot to say about the contemporary world. But before we start properly, I need to thank you, because I was finally able to tell my friends this week that I've put my master's degree thesis about human-dolphin communication experiments in the 60s to a real professional use. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's that, that's great. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... You know, one of the things that that I say about this book is one of the themes of the book is I have read all of these books so that you don't necessarily have to. (laughs) But you make us want to, which I think is uh, is a great asset. Before we get into the weeds of marine intelligence and the difficulties of relating to the aliens on our planet right here with us, I want you to talk a little bit about your professional background in marine science. So you're an international advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Institute uh, Administration in the US. What does that mean? And how did you get there? Yeah, so I am actually on detail from the United States Department of State to NOAA, that's the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, to their Marine Protected Areas uh, Center. And that's a, that's a one-year position. So one of the worries in my bio is that I sometimes outrun it and, uh, and I will either not be in a position or have moved on from that, you know, by the time it gets read. But I am right now fulfilling that international advisor position. I'm not a scientist. I am like 
the joke about drummers, like who's a drummer, right? A guy who likes to hang out with musicians. I'm sort of like a guy who likes to hang out with scientists. And it, the experience at NOAA is great, but I'm not going to be there forever, unfortunately. I'm a foreign service officer with the Department of State. And uh, a bit more about the background to this book is that in my first tour, I was environment, science, technology, and health officer in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And I did a lot of work on the Condal Archipelago, the real place in which this book is set, and worked a lot with their marine protected area there. They're very beleaguered uh, at the time, marine protected area in which a lot of poaching was occurring, etc., trying to help them to uh, better protect it and engage youth, especially in documenting biodiversity on the island, etc. So the impetus from the book comes from that concrete work more in environmental uh, preservation and working with park rangers and working with U.S. scientists to cooperate with the park on helping improve some of the standards there. How does the work of the novelist Ray Naylor fit in with the work of the biodiversity and conservation advocate? I mean, it strikes me that this isn't an obviously didactic book, although there are certain environmentalist sensibilities running all the way through it. Yeah, I think I think that you know, I have, I'm this person that has this very involved day job and then does the writing very early in the morning, usually for a couple of hours before, before my other work. And I'm not always involved in doing environmental work or marine preservation because as a foreign service officer and public diplomacy officer, I do a lot of different work. And sometimes I'm in landlocked countries, et cetera. But I'd say that, you know, it's kind of like having these two engines that are driving you forward. And, and when one gets a bit tired, the other one kind of picks up. So I have the writing that helps me sort of become inspired to learn more things. And it, and then that rolls over into my day job. And then I have the day job that teaches me things and demands things of me. And then that feeds back into the writing. I mean, I never would have gotten this book, of course, without that time on the Condal Archipelago. And I never would have gotten that time there if the State Department hadn't sent me to Vietnam, even though I was a Russian speaker and didn't have any experience with, you know, these kinds of issues. So I think the demand from my job of always having to learn these new things and having to get into new environments and get into the heads of people, you know, and conduct diplomacy and really think about how people view you and how people view your country and that kind of thing really helps me to create characters on the page as well. And then hopefully to create characters that maybe wouldn't normally appear in this kind of book coming from an American writer. There isn't a white man with an interest in science anywhere in this book. Were you conscious of the conversation around writing the other and cultural appropriation that's going on at the moment? How did you navigate that? So I really do take these things very seriously. And I think that you need to, you need to have a great deal of empathy if you're going to write outside of your own experience, but I don't write about outside really of my own experience. I would only write about people that I had lived with, worked with, spoken to over a period of, of years. And when we come to the, the main character, of course, is a, is a Vietnamese uh, marine biologist, Hong Nguyen. And, and Ha had to exist because Ha is basically this composite of all of the women that I was working with in Vietnam on marine science and environmental conservation. So it's not simply as a writer about representation of oneself. It's always also about that representation of other people and making sure that they're brought 
to the fore in the book. And I'm not talking about particular identities in this case. What I'm really talking about is individual people and, and their values and their ideas and their concerns. So a lot of who Ha is, is this person speaking for a lot of these concerns. What inspired you to build a life outside of Canada and the US, which is where you were born and raised? That's, that's a really good question. So to be perfectly honest, I was in San Francisco. It was 2002, I think. I had just had a breakup with a long-term girlfriend, and I felt like I really needed to do something drastic. And so I joined the Peace Corps. And, uh, and during my interview, they actually asked me, well, have you had a long-term relationship that ended recently? Because I think this is something that probably drives people into the, into the Peace Corps quite a bit. And I said, no, <laughs> I just lied. So, and, uh, and I thought that I would end up in, uh, in somewhere in Africa. Maybe I had a lot of sort of stereotypes about the Peace Corps and what that experience would be like. I ended up in Turkmenistan in, in Central Asia and I ended up learning Russian while I was there. And I ended up really just falling falling in love with Central Asia, with the people that I was living with, with the experience of being the, the foreigner and the, and the sort of alien in the, in the situation and actually having to do this extra work of trying to communicate properly with people. And I, I think that, that that sort of resistance to my ideas of, myself and and that kind of thing really was powerful for me it was this it was this this empathy for people trying to communicate in foreign contexts grew out of my own you know just sometimes hysterically funny sometimes extremely you know distressing moments of of miscommunication in the peace corps and and abroad and i stayed i stayed i went to moscow after uh, after Turkmenistan, I worked there for a while. I also worked in Kazakhstan and in Kyrgyzstan, uh, in Afghanistan briefly, and then uh, in Moscow again for a few years, and in Tajikistan, where I actually joined the Foreign Service. And from there, it was Vietnam, uh, and then Kyrgyzstan again, Azerbaijan, Kosovo, and now finally back to the United States. But I've basically been abroad for 20 years. You've mentioned miscommunication already, and this is a novel about the difficulties of communication, primarily with intelligent animals and with artificial intelligences, more than with human beings. But there is some miscommunication with human beings in there as well. And I'd like to know how traveling so much and learning so many languages has influenced your interest in the philosophy of language and communication. Yeah, I think one of the things that you that you learn when you're learning new languages is that, it, is that it's not it's not just this one-to-one transfer of knowledge. It's not like you actually learn a word and it means the same thing as a word that you know in English. In fact, these concepts are completely different and they're embedded in, in culture and they're embedded in people's points of view about the world and the way that they make meaning in their language can be completely different from English. And, and so I think like having to attend to that all the time and having to really translate not just the words that you're saying, but your own behavior. So I'll give you a good example. Uh, this is an example I've given a few times, and, and I think it's the, the one that comes to mind for me the most. If I said to you, 
just in a Western context, I don't really get along with my mother, right? Then you might think if you didn't know me that well, that I was oversharing a little bit or something, but it wouldn't be unusual. And it's something that we talk about, you know, about our problems with our, with our parents and, and our family. And, uh, you know, and we might get going and having a conversation about it. And all it would mean to you maybe is that I was, uh, you know, someone who was open or I uh, you know, overshared in that context or something like that, or it might not seem awkward at all. If I said to you as a Turkmen person, right, if you were Turkmen and I was a Westerner and I said, I don't get along with my mother, what you would think is, I should never speak to this person again. They don't even understand the basic idea of what loyalty means. They would tell someone else that they don't get along with the person in the world who should be the most sacred to them. And they would violate that sacred relationship by bringing an outsider into it. This person cannot be trusted with anything, is totally worthless, and I need to get out of this situation where I'm forced to talk to them and then never, ever enter into a situation where I'm stuck with this person in the same room again. I mean, that's the level of the power of, of miscommunication, right? By Just by saying something simple like that. And, and do you get on with your mother? <laughs> I do, yes. <laughs> I do, yes. And, uh, but interestingly, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, interesting. Uh, interestingly, I get along much more with my mother having come back from Turkmenistan than I did before. Because I think that what I learned was your parents are your parents and that's it, right? And it's not, it's not about whether you like, like them or not. It's not about those kinds of, of judgments. It's, it's they're your parents, and you will get along with them. <laughs> so I took a little bit on from, the, from, from that Turkmen, you know, idea that there is a sacred, a kind of sacredness to family. And, uh, and I, I worked actually harder when I came back to, to make sure that those relationships were strong. The premise of The Mountain in the Sea is the discovery of a new species of sentient octopus and how we humans might be able to form a meaningful relationship with them. And many of the listeners of this podcast will be familiar with the huge interest in octopuses that has come about in recent years, with books like Peter Godfrey Smith's Other Minds and the documentary My Octopus Teacher. Can you tell us what it is that makes octopuses so special in the animal kingdom, and why a speculative storyteller like yourself, concerned with themes like the nature of consciousness and selfhood, and with miscommunication, which we've already talked about, might want to base an entire novel around them? So I think that one of the things that's really fascinating about this creature is there are this 500 million years of evolutionary separation between human beings and the octopus. And our last common ancestor is basically a flatworm with not much of a visual apparatus and, and no real brain to speak of. And what you have is in this most unlikely animal, a mollusk, Right whose pretty close relatives are things like a snail, a slug, right, on land. You have a brain that has evolved this massive uh, ability for curiosity about its world, for exploration, this intelligence without a spine, without many of the things that we think about as uh, being a part of having 
this kind, this level of brain. So I think we recognize really easily that dolphins, for example, are smart and like us in a way. We, we feel this kinship for, for our mammals, but what we see in the octopus is really striking. It's this completely different kind of embodiment and this totally different kind of intelligence. They don't have a top-down brain. Instead, they have a body that's completely suffused with neurons in which their limbs are doing a lot of the sort of, quote, thinking, unquote. And I think it's really hard for us to even conceptualize of what exactly is going on in the octopus's existence at any given moment. The, the metaphor I'd like to suggest is that what might be happening is a little bit like if you are driving a car and you suddenly become aware after not really being there behind the wheel of being conscious of driving a car, right? It's as if you, you almost went to sleep, but you were fully in control of piloting this vehicle. And then something happens. Someone steps on the brakes in front of you or your, your concentration shifts. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, like I'm behind the wheel of a car and I had completely spaced out. I feel like that's a little bit probably what it's like for the octopus that can shift its constant. It can, it can actually pull its limbs into full control but its limbs are probably spending a lot of time just doing a lot of exploration of the seafloor on its own. So you have that. You have this embodiment of this extraordinarily different but incredibly sophisticated mind that is totally unlike ours in a body that's completely unlike ours, a sort of an almost liquid body. And in a sense, because the neurons are so suffused throughout its form, it's almost like a mind floating in the ocean exploring the ocean with these limbs that are just directly a part of the mind. And I think that's quite extraordinary. So you have that difference. But on top of that, what I think is fascinating is you have this one piece of extraordinary similarity, which is that the octopus has an eye that is almost exactly like our own. The octopus makes eye contact with you in a way that a human would make eye contact with you. It has a camera eye and it is its function and abilities are very similar to the human eye. So again, it's like 500 million years of evolutionary separation and we end up with this animal that can look us directly in the eye with eyes that are very much like our own and yet has this way of being in the world that is so completely alien that we're always basing aliens on this creature, right? We're continually basing aliens on the idea of the octopus because it just, I think it just automatically strikes us at a, at a, at a, like a, a subconscious, an unconscious level, right? As the, one of the more alien creatures on this planet. And so that's, that was my starting point, like that sort of extraordinary difference and similarity. And then my other thing is, so I was this really kind of annoying kid who, instead of asking why all the time, asked an even more aggravating question, which is how, right? So not why is the sky blue, but how? Like, what is happening to make that be the dominant color in the sky? Okay, so dragons breathe fire, right? How would that happen? How do they not burn themselves? Like, where does it go? Where does it come from? Do they have a flammable gas that they ignite in their mouths when they, ex you know... This is why you've written a science fiction novel instead of a fantasy novel. Exactly, exactly. I could, I, I could never write a fantasy novel because I would constantly, constantly be fussing over the like, real-life scientific details. And so what I wanted to take seriously, though, was this really specific thing. If you were going to establish communication with 
a creature that was capable of symbolic communication, like communication on the, on the sort of sophisticated symbolic linguistic level that humans are capable of, how would you do that? How would you find this common language? And I wanted to do it in a way that was convincingly realistic because if you just invent an alien species, then you can hand wave all of that because they can communicate however you want. Right. So that was, that was the sort of impetus was to give myself a problem that was critically dense and, and had a lot of potential to allow me to talk about other things, but that was also the scientific problem. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But let's get stuck into the weeds a little bit. How would octopuses communicate if they evolved a language and consequently a culture? So the, the book makes this, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's a hypothesis that the, the octopus would communicate through symbols on its skin. Uh, and the octopus actually does make symbols and sort of shapes on its skin using something called the, the passing cloud. So an octopus will, has this hunting method where it will sort of drift over the seafloor and will move a shadow across its skin. It will create a dark shadow that, that, that moves very rapidly across its surface. And it does this in order to, they think, startle prey out of hiding and then, and then uh, attack it. So... The reason I thought that the, that the octopus would use maybe something like this method of communication is because what the octopus needs to do is to exapt something. Uh, exaption is when you use one thing for something else uh, physically. So, for example, human beings use our breathing and our eating apparatus to speak. It didn't start out that way. But we, over time, learned to use this apparatus to speak, and then the speech uh, elements of that apparatus improved uh, through evolution. So, so we have a more sophisticated voice box than we probably did when we started using breathing and, and speaking apparatuses to, to speak. I think that the, the octopus would probably use something like this because it's a way of concretely communicating a piece of information to another animal, uh, but it doesn't interfere with a lot of the body's other functions and it can be well interpreted. So that's the kind of the idea that the book gets into that's the that's the method of communication have you been underwater with octopuses in the past or are you making this all up i have been underwater i've done done a, a decent amount of diving especially when i was in vietnam and uh and then in, in thailand and some other places but i have actually never been diving with an octopus uh, i have been diving with cephalopods but with uh, cuttlefish and I had a pretty great encounter with a cuttlefish during a night dive 
which I like to call the, uh, the party boat encounter, where he kind of came into my dive light. It was a juvenile cuttlefish, almost transparent, and started just flashing all of these crazy colors and dancing around back and forth in front of me, uh, clearly trying to get some kind of like a rise or a reaction out of me or maybe scare me off or something. And it, this, this communication went on for, I think, probably 10 or 15 minutes of the dive with this little juvenile following me around, you know, swerving around in front of me, coming up to my mask and then swimming away and coming back. And so I think that was where the seed was planted really of, of this idea that there, you know, this communication with a cephalopod could occur. I mean, I think that, I think what, I think what people don't give enough credit to is the fact that we communicate with animals all the time. That, for example, people have been in dense communication with horses for thousands of years. We, we give them commands which they understand. They express needs to us which we fill, etc. We speak to our animals, our domestic animals, in ways that they clearly understand. And they communicate needs to us that we fulfill for them. So communication is something that happens extensively across species, right? And animal species, of course, in the wild communicate with one another. You know, a classic example is when a fox is chasing a, a hare, quite often what the hare will do is instead of running away, the hare stops, turns around, and looks at the fox. And the communication that's taking place is this. The hare is faster than the fox. The fox can only catch the hare if the hare has not seen it. And the fox knows this. And what the hare is saying is, this is a waste of both of our energy. You can go ahead and go away now because I know you're there. And the fox indeed will not chase a hare that does this because it knows the hare has seen it and it's useless to do. So we see interspecies communication humans with other species, species with one another, what I'm trying to, to get at is what would happen if it was occurring on this symbolic linguistic level where you can, you can communicate abstract things, things about the future or the past, other things, and how difficult would it be to establish that kind of communication? Because honestly, I think we, we really underestimate how easy it is to establish basic levels of communication with other creatures on the planet. I mean, I have a bird feeder on my balcony and this morning I forgot to feed it and I had 10 birds sitting on the perch, you know, waiting, <laughs> waiting for me to feed it. Then they all flew away. And as soon as I came outside to feed it, they started checking out to see if, you know, I was done and there was, uh, there was food for them or not. So, you know, we have a relationship. Like we're, we're in relationship with a much wider world than just the world of humans. Real-world octopuses are highly solitary and rarely gather in groups. And when they do gather in groups, they tend to be quite violent and sometimes even cannibalistic. But in this novel, octopuses are socialised and it's the human protagonists who suffer from loneliness and isolation. Sometimes they claim to reap the benefits of solitude, but I detect the author not approving entirely of that and the characters deluding themselves a little bit. How much, in your estimation, is loneliness a symptom of our modern, digitized, globalized world? How much is it an inevitability of the human condition? And is it oxymoronic to suggest that one can have a self apart from the world? So here's what I would say about this. I'll, I'll use another example, actually, from Turkmenistan, since it's, they, seem to, they seem to be good ones. Um, 
The Turkmen had this thing, my host family uh, demonstrated it time and time again, where if you left the presence of other people and you went off by yourself, they would come and check on you. And I found it really irritating at first because I would go and go to my room to just read a book and my host brother would show up at my door and knock on it and I would open it and he would say, are you okay? And I'd say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just reading a book. And he would say, but are you okay? Are you sick? Because they had no sense of it being good or something that would be wanted to be alone. And what I, what I learned was I could read a book, but I needed to do it in the presence of other people. So I needed to go in the room where, where my family was watching television or, or just chatting or, or, you know, having tea. And I needed to sit down and, and read that book uh, with them there. And as long as I was there and I was reading the book in their presence, they weren't concerned about me. They didn't see that there was any sort of, of issue. But as soon as I retreated off somewhere else, they would immediately come and seek me out because they were worried about me. And and for them, I think there really wasn't much of a concept of this, this being away from people being a healthy thing or a thing that could possibly be healthy. They really felt that there was this, that humans' purpose was to be around other humans basically all the time. You know, and they would sleep uh, in the in the summer out on this platform, you know, together, side by side, the whole family uh, when it was hot. And, you know, and inside the house, they really didn't have bedrooms uh, of their own. Uh, they would just sleep next to one another on, the, on a, a douchec, a kind of uh, padded mattress on the floor. And at first it was really aggravating. And then I came to really love it. And... And there was this, this sense that whatever was going on with you, you were not alone in it, right? And when I started to notice about all countries in Central Asia that was interesting, that was that, was that you know, generally speaking, there were no homeless people, really. Especially there were no homeless people who were not, say, Russians whose families had, had collapsed during the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, because... No one would allow someone who was even remotely connected to them to be homeless. Uh, there was no concept of, oh, my brother is you know, homeless in some other city. You would go and you would find that person. You would take them into your home at whatever inconvenience, even if they had a substance abuse problem, even if it was almost bankrupting for you financially. And so basically, if someone was homeless, it meant that everyone in their family was dead. And, and that sense of connectedness, I think, is the general human culture. That is the sort of core of, of, of human culture. Most human beings feel connected to other human beings in that way. And Western culture is very strange in the sense that it encourages people to feel as if they are disconnected, both from other people, but also from the world and so I think that is, so that, that sense of disconnection has power to it. It gives the individual an ability, because of course, like the other, the flip side of the, of the Turkmen situation, right, is that family can be incredibly suffocating. They will keep you from being able to realize you know, your, your dreams. They will pressure you to do things you don't want. I mean, there's this whole other 
your mother Maybe. might actually be awful. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And you may be never able to tell anyone about that, right? Um, and, and so there is this incredible power to the Western concept of individuality, but there's very little balance. There isn't this like sense of the individual as also being fully connected to other people. And there's and we and we're very bad, I think, at sort of finding a way to negotiate that sense of autonomy and individualism with a sense of responsibility to the environment, to uh, the people around us, to the way that our our words and actions harm or help other people. And so I, I think that the novel does continually come back to this concern about individualism and about loneliness and like what loneliness comes from and and what it means. I mean what I've what I've found is what I think, my theory is that loneliness arises out of a sense of detachment from the world that quickly becomes a sense of isolation. And that loneliness can be destroyed by reclaiming your sense of connectedness to the world. It's something as simple as speaking to other people to, to strangers on the street sometimes can really give you this sense of joy. And I think we've all felt that even introverts like myself, like you, you just have a random conversation with someone at a bus stop and all of a sudden you feel like elated afterward. You've had this, you know, minor interaction, but you, you, you feel suffused with a sense of like goodness in the world. And I, and I, I think that, you know, we're missing a lot of that. Another, it's just sort of an example I would, I, would, I would give to illustrate this is, you know, there's this passage in Herodotus where they talk about Athens being evacuated. And what is said is the city moved to this island off the coast, right? And what's powerful about that and different from the way we express this is in English, when he said the city, the polis, right? He meant the people, not the buildings, not the physical like things of Athens, but the polis, the city of Athens, which was the collective existence of the people, the living people of Athens moved. And I think we need to start, that's a good, that's a good sort of middle point, right? Like the Greeks were sort of, in a sense, we, we, I think we, we kind of, uh, fetishized them as the first Westerners, right? In fact, they were, they were quite Eastern in a lot of their like thought. And I mean, Eastern in the stereotypical way we think about uh, Easterners, but the Greeks had a lot of this sensibility in them of, you know, man is a political animal. And what that means is man is a part of the city of the polis, right? And the city is politics and politics is the collective existence. And, and so I think that that what we what we've become somewhat suffused with is the false idea that we can be separate from the world without that having a deep negative consequence, both for us and for the world. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's a long tradition in speculative and fantastical storytelling of the eidetic memory, the mixed blessing of being unable to forget. Will you elaborate a little on what you wanted to say about that in the novel? Uh, so that's an, another good question. So, so yes, you have this, uh, this android in the novel who is very much like a human being, but one of the ways in which they are different is that they don't forget anything. And, and there is a passage in the book where the, the protagonist, Ha, speculates that that might be or become a very significant problem because forgetting is really a part of the way that we, we function in the world. I would say, I think the most valuable part of forgetting is it, it, it plays a role in storytelling. And the storytelling that we're doing is essentially right about who we are in the world. I sort of view the way that... A, a person moves through the world as this kind of triadic relationship. We have our present moment that we're in and we are telling a story about our present moment and why we're here. That's involved both with our imagination about where we're going in the future and our idea about who we were in the past. That's gotten us up to this moment and wherever our present moment is, we're kind of negotiating those other two relationships. Well, you know, I got this job because I worked hard and I did these things, et cetera. And we've, forgotten that we didn't really work that hard right for this job it was sort of given to us and and uh, and actually we got it through connections and that kind of thing but we're building this story about ourselves and i wouldn't call it lying but in a sense that you know it sort of is and our memories are very malleable in the sense that i think they are engaged our memories are fully engaged in our present act of storytelling at any given moment and they are being viewed from a different angle according to wherever we are in our present day. And also we're projecting into the future to sort of see where we intend to go. And that's informing the way that we see ourselves in the present. So if you were a person who had a perfect recall that you could not falsify, what would that say? And what would that do to your ability to tell stories about where you are in this present moment? I think it would probably be extraordinarily difficult to exist in the world if you weren't able to reshape your memories into something that made your present self coherent to yourself. You mentioned your Android character, Evrim, and AI is one of the key themes of the novel. On the one hand, you're writing in the tradition of the Matrix and the Terminator about AI that's weaponized against human interests. There's an AI on board a ship that is programmed to enslave its crew. And on the other hand, Evrim, the android, is benevolent, but he inspires extreme fear and hatred from humanity just for the crime of existing. Why are we frightened of AI? And how does that sit in lockstep with the desire to make contact with animal minds like the octopus? Yeah, this is, this is sort of a central idea of, of the book, right? We, we seem to vacillate as a human species between being deeply frightened of other minds and other ways of looking at the world and being extremely fascinated with other minds. Uh, and one of the things that the book interrogates, I think, is this sense that I have that, that sometimes I feel like we're not up to the task of communicating with an alien species of any kind because we're, we're just not up to the task of communicating with ourselves. Like we haven't done the work in communicating with the human species. Instead, we've broken the human species into all of these supposedly unlike pieces. 
and pretended like there's no way for us to talk to one another or understand each other, which in every country that I've spent any time in in the world is just fundamentally untrue. Like it takes really hard work to be understood by another human being in Turkmenistan. But it takes really hard work to be understood by, by your own brother sometimes, right? And to communicate your, mo- your motivations as one individual to another individual inside your own culture. And so how are we supposed to communicate with someone else? And I think what frightens us is that there will be this other that we, we fundamentally can't understand and that fundamentally refuses to understand us and give us any sort of slack for the things that we've done to this world, right? To, to the species around us, et cetera. There's going to be some kind of judge to come and say, like, look what you've done to this place. Who do you think you are? How would this, any of this be justifiable? Like it's, and so I think that there's, there is that kind of fear that an AI would come and destroy us. And, but I think that underlying that fear is the idea that the AI would come and destroy us because we deserve it. Right? We're afraid that we really deserve to be destroyed for the way, for the way that we have uh, responded to the gift we've been given of having these complex minds. Right? And then I, I think on the, other, on the other hand, we sort of simplify for ourselves what it means to think. And we, like, for example, AI is very much in the present moment. Everybody's really impressed with this chat gpt that fundamentally well let's let's use the term impressed loosely <laughs> right right i asked it to write some poetry for me and i wasn't impressed <laughs> no yeah no and, and yeah exactly and that's exactly where i was going i am not impressed right and and like fundamentally we're just i feel like anyone who thinks that chat gpt is mimicking the way that a human being is or operates or is anything like a mind it just doesn't understand how a mind works. This is not how a mind works. This is not how thinking is done, right? And and so I think we have this arrogance, it's at some sense, in thinking we can create minds. We don't understand even how our own minds work. There's this amazing, you know, uh, just thinking of this because uh, this has been a, a really inspiring, you know, moment for me. Is William Sloan has this amazing novel, and one of the moments, and the novel is basically about a woman who is possessed by something from outer space. It, it invades her body and takes her, takes her over. And, and the whole novel is about trying to reveal that this has actually happened. And there's one point when, in which the, the, the thing, whatever it is that's taken her over, says basically, you're so afraid of me because you don't understand what I am. But I think that's so strange because you don't understand what you are. Right, and it's such a it's an amazing moment because we we really don't. I had a, a great conversation with Wole Talabi, who's a, a really great Nigerian science fiction author. I would suggest people look up, and he he said, you know, as a thought experiment, imagine if every time human beings had encountered other human beings, the encounter went like this: they 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 sort of sat down and they explained one another's worldviews to one another, and they exchanged good ideas that they had and talked to each other about the ways in which they could, they could maybe, you know, take on some of the things that the other people did, et cetera, and learn from them. And every human exchange had just consisted of that, right? Like the, the, the pilgrims land, right? In the, in, the, in the new world, they sit down, you know, and they, and they just say like, Oh, like, how do you, how do you live? And, and, and what are your, what are your belief systems? And, you know, 
what a profoundly different way of thinking uh, about the world we would have ended up with. Instead, every single encounter we've had, by the way, with ourselves, right, has basically ended up with us murdering or enslaving ourselves. And it's and I really mean ourselves because another interesting fact I learned recently, there's more genetic difference in a single grove of oak trees between individual oaks of the same species than there is in the entire human race. Wow. That's genuinely astonishing to me. <laughs> Um, this is a novel with genre tropes like a monster, robots, pirates, mysterious island, a mad scientist, an Amazonian soldier, all these elements of adventure. But one could read it without even noticing those. How do you balance a serious, intellectually rigorous narrative with the sense of dynamism and the thrill ride so, so we were saying before that like one of the themes of the, of the book should be, I've read a lot of these books so that you don't necessarily have to. I, I sort of say that as a, as a joke because, of course, I think people should read these books. But, but the fact is that a lot of science and a lot of these ideas are presented in ways that are, are really difficult. And I think un, sometimes unnecessarily difficult. And what I wanted to do was kind of break down that hierarchical binary idea that there are two separate things in fiction. There's entertainment, right? And there is this intellectual and philosophical engagement with the world. And I really wanted, my goal was to create a book in which both things are equally present. And I felt like one of the ways to do that was to really dig into some of these tropes, like the mysterious island, right? The sort of Dr. Moreau-like character, but also things like The Tempest, Right. I mean, there's a there's a part right where Everham just directly quotes the Tempest standing on a beach, you know, on, on, on the island. And and I, I love this idea of kind of intertextuality, right? This weaving of other other books into your book so that people recognize them. They recognize that there's something here of Frankenstein. Right. And there's something here of of all of these other references that lead outward from the text. Right. Um the, the name of the of the ship is a, is a reference, right? And and I want people to, I want the book to be this productive space, this kind of architecture for addressing really complex questions, which doesn't mean giving those questions answers because I, I don't want it to be didactic and I don't have answers to a lot of these questions. I certainly don't have an answer to what consciousness is, but I think it's really an interesting way to talk about it is to construct the space in which people are talking about those ideas and engaging with them and then to lead people out from that space into other things that are referenced right uh like the you know Ico's in that he stores his his memories in you know is it's a reference to a real place in a real book right and uh, and you can go and you can sort of follow those leads because what I always really liked was when you could do that in a book like when a book would name another book and then you could go read that book and it's exciting to follow all these little rabbit holes and pathways so I wanted to do a lot of that and then I also wanted to kind of interrogate those tropes as well I mean I I think it's really important to interrogate the trope of the monster right um, especially because if you look at the root of the word what it means is a warning right 
And, uh, and I think that like the existence of a monster is always a warning to us that there's something we're not fully understanding about the world or our place in it. And so the, what the monstrous tells us is that we've misapprehended something. There's something missing in our knowledge. Uh, there's other things that we need to learn in order to make this monster make sense to us. Um, and I, and I like the idea, of course, of flipping those things since so much of what we've done, I think as a culture, and I think this is to be fair, true of many cultures and not just of Western culture writ, writ large, we've othered huge chunks of humanity throughout our existence. Right. And, uh, and we've made them monstrous and, uh, and I think that's something that needs to be interrogated at all levels. We've also made animals monstrous to us. We've, uh, we've misunderstood them and their, and their aims. We've uh, represented them as um, only things that are here to serve us, right. Or threaten us rather than being, being sort of in themselves. And so, yeah, the, those kinds of tropes are, are fun to dig into. And the, you know, the scary robots and, and all of those other things, I think there's a level at which it's it's entertaining and amusing, and then underneath there's levels in which those things are are philosophically resonant in a in a book like this, and they bring hopefully more depth to the text. Following on from that, can you explain a little bit about the relationship between science fiction as you conceive it and the future? Because it seems inadequate just to think of science fictional futures as a fantasy play space that's cut loose from reality. But equally, it's pretty obvious that speculative fiction doesn't predict the future in any meaningful way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Speculative fiction does not predict the future in, in any meaningful way. And there is this kind of pop culture idea of like, oh, let's see like what Asimov was right about and what he was wrong about. As if Asimov was actually trying to predict some kind of concrete future for, for mankind. And he would play with this idea. He would go on television and he would make predictions, etc. But But he certainly didn't think that, you know, we were all going to live underground in these caves of steel or anything like that. I think the job of, of speculative fiction is very different from that. I think the job is not prediction. It is predication. What, what speculative fiction does, and this is really its power, is it takes one thing or, or some set of things and it changes them. And it does that in order to shift things around and draw attention to two things. One is what might be if these things were different. Another thing is what is right now and how those things might be different. And another one in the sort of tradition of this, the counterfactual, right, is what if we change this thing in the past and how would that make the world different? And I think that those predications are really powerful. They're not predictions. They're, this, they're just this, a shifting of the stuff of our reality in order to shine a lens on what's going on right now. And then it also in order to shine a lens on, on what could be or what might have been. And I think thinking about what might have been in a sense, right? It's like the self, you've got this present moment, the future moment, the past moment, and speculative fiction is doing that with culture as a whole or with humanity as a whole. Sometimes. Um, I mean, I, I recently wrote a couple of uh, stories in a series in which, you know, I had, I'd grown tired of this trope of, Oh, what if the Nazis won world war two? And instead, I 
wrote a couple of stories that were basically about, well, what if the United States won World War II, but like too much, right? Like what if it won World War II and then also went to Moscow and defeated Russia and then also defeated the communists in China? And instead of this multipolar world of the Cold War, you ended up with a unipolar world completely ruled by the United States after World War II, right? Um, and by and by its allies uh, in in the West, so you have this incredibly dominant West with no resistance. You know what if that happened? Um, that I think is the real power in a way of the genre. It's this just shifting things around, this kaleidoscopic effect it can have on pointing out social injustices and and possibilities that maybe people couldn't think of otherwise. I mean, I'll take the example of the slave ship that you mentioned, and you know a statistic or a concept or a fact that I like to point out to people or which is very uncomfortable is there are more slaves on earth right now uh, than there have ever been in history. Uh, More people are enslaved on this planet than we have ever seen before. And yet we think of ourselves as being free from slavery. And we think of slavery as being this thing that happened in the Roman Empire or in the United States or in the colonies or somewhere else. It is here and it's now. And a lot of those people are slaves on ships that are catching the fish that we are eating. And the only thing that I took that was speculative about the ship in the book is the AI component. Everything else is absolutely drawn from the experiences of people who were enslaved in fishing fleets, you know, the big factory ship, the not going to shore in order to keep them enslaved, the armed guards, the beatings, the murders, the, all of those terrible things that happen in that particular timeline of the book are real. They're real terrors and they're right here right now. And so that's, again, you distance it a little bit with this AI mind, but you're able to shine a lens on this present injustice. It's pretty horrifying. I actually had no idea that 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 plot line was more or less true. What's next for Ray Naylor, the author? And what's next for Ray Naylor, the diplomat? (laughs) So, so yeah, I, you know, it's, it's always funny. It is a little bit like time travel when you're talking about a book, because of course I, you know, I finished this book in 20, at late 2019 and sold it in 2020. Uh, I've written another, another book length work and I've sold that one as well. And I'm now working on, on a, a, a second novel. So the next thing is, you know, trying to sell eventually this, this book and, and work with my agent to do that, I suppose. But I'm, I'm really in the, in the midst of, of writing it right now. It's a very different book. And I'm really enjoying being back in that space of, of creating something new. It really feels good to me. Um, what's next for me in my day job is I move on from, from Noah. I'll move on to the George Washington University. I'll be the diplomat in residence at their um, International Science and Technology Policy Institute. Uh, And then from there, I don't know yet. We'll see where I go next. Well, Ray, I'm looking forward to talking to you about book two in a couple of years, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. This has really been, been great. This week's episode starred Ray Naylor and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. It was edited by John Doughty, and I make this series with Esme Bright. 
with help from Nicole Wong. Ray's novel The Mountain in the Sea is out now. I recommend checking it out even if you don't normally enjoy speculative or fantastical fiction. If you do, you might also like my past interviews with William Gibson and Ken Liao, both available at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, thanks for listening.